0: This episode is sponsored by TrueLearn, an exam prep company best known for their smart banks that turn your weak areas into your strengths. TrueLearn is the only company I trusted for Comlex Level 1 prep last year and Level 2 prep this year. Each TrueLearn practice question has detailed answer explanations and concise bottom lines for customizable studying. TrueLearn also has amazing USMLE smart banks as well as subscriptions for shelf or coma exams. Go to TrueLearn.com and use one of my special discount codes I have for up to $35 off your subscription. Special discount codes can be found in the episode description. TrueLearn is the first-line solution for excelling on exams. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson and this is Firstline, here to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Hello everyone, welcome back to First Line. Thank you for joining me. This week I'm going to talk about my experience on my pediatrics rotation. I actually recorded my thoughts about halfway through the rotation, but the audio was really bad. So I listened to it and took some notes and I'm going to share those right now. And then I'm gonna close with some of my overall thoughts on the rotation. So halfway through, It's not as much of a first impression as I've done on my other episodes about rotations, but it's still a lot of my thoughts as I'm in the rotation instead of looking back on it. So just an overview, I completed my pediatrics rotation in an outpatient clinic, so a doctor's office. And the practice that I was with was a brand new practice, practically. They just opened the summer before. So it was about six or seven months since they've opened. And it's a two-physician practice. One of the physicians started when it opened over the summer. And then the second physician just started in November. So she was there for only two or three months. So you might not realize this, but when you first start a new practice, it takes a while for the practice to build up a patient load. So that means that the schedule really isn't full. If you've ever had to make an appointment with the doctor, you may have had to wait weeks, if not months for an appointment. But for this practice, because they were brand new, they would have many openings throughout the day. So there was a lot of downtime for the students. And I actually did the rotation with two other students for the first half and then one other student for the second half. And the students that I rotated with were actually fourth year students. So they chose this as an elective. They wanted to get extra experience in pediatrics in their fourth year and because there was a lot of downtime, we had a lot of didactics, which is going over different topics in pediatrics as a group. So it was a lot of learning experiences because many times if you have busy days on rotations, you'll just be seeing patients back to back to back, which is a great learning experience, but you're also putting a lot of work in. So maybe you're not focused on learning new things as much as you are practicing things you already know so this was different in that there was a lot of time that we could go over different topics and I felt like I was studying just as much during the day as when I went home because after each day of any of my rotations I would be studying at home to supplement the clinical experience that I get on rotations. And there's pluses and minuses to that too. I got a lot of studying done, but then I didn't see as many kids as maybe some other students at other locations may have, but I still feel like I did see quite a lot of patients, and I had more time with the preceptors to talk about those patients and really learn from each patient. So I think on the whole, it was probably a positive, I would say. And because the practice was new, this makes sense that think about what kind of people would be looking for a new pediatrician. Well, maybe people that are unhappy with their current pediatrician or people whose pediatrician no longer takes their insurance, which I did see a lot of, but also there was a lot of newborns because newborns, they need a new doctor because they've never seen a doctor before. So there were quite a few newborns. And then there was a lot of families that just moved into the area, which I saw a lot of as well. And what was cool about this rotation is that I did get to see patients come in multiple times because I think a lot of practices would like to have consistent, regular, and prompt follow-ups to different situations, but because of schedule constraints, aren't able to do it. And I felt like with this practice, since there is availability, I was able to see patients come in So if a patient came in with strep throat, I was able to see when they were first diagnosed and then I was able to see when they came in a week later after they finished their antibiotics and they were better. I got to see this with a patient that was just started on an SSRI, which is for depression. And I saw her when she was diagnosed with depression, given the new medication, and then I saw her follow up about two weeks later, which was really interesting. And then I saw a few newborns that were coming in for weight checks. So I was able to see familiar faces with the parents and get to see these babies grow, which was really cool. And I also didn't really mind having a lower patient load because I have done family medicine rotations already and at those locations, I did see a lot of kids as well, so I didn't feel like I wasn't getting enough exposure. Compared to prior rotations, pediatrics provides new challenges. Pediatrics is complicated. Many people may not realize the challenges that it presents. First of all, you usually can't ask patients what is wrong because they are often too young to really explain it well, especially if they're newborn and they can't even talk. So, it inherently requires more emphasis on the physical exam and a more in depth physical exam, as the eyes, ears, nose, and throat exam is a lot more important than in adults. A lot of kids have ear infections and strep throat, for example, but also because you can't ask them questions about their history of their illness, when when it started, how it feels, you have to focus on doing a very detailed exam, paying attention to everything, and basing a lot on observation. Of course, many times you can ask the caregiver, whether it's a parent or a legal guardian, who can provide some information to the history of illness, but Because it's not happening to themselves, they might not be able to give you all of the information, but they might be able to say when it started, but not necessarily how it feels or what makes it better, what makes it worse, things like that. And this applies especially to pain. Pain is the hardest thing to deal with in the pediatric population because you only know that they're in pain Infants, if they're crying, but you won't be able to know where the pain is coming from. You won't be able to know if it's getting better or worse, if it changes throughout the day. And you won't be able to understand the quality of the pain either. And caregivers have the hardest time reporting the pain that their child feels because they can't ask them either. So many young children even can't communicate pain even when they are able to talk to you. They might struggle to describe the pain or share details like if it is worsening or if they notice it at different times of day. Also, children struggle a lot with describing other symptoms like nausea. They don't really seem to understand what that feeling is and won't be able to verbalize how it feels or to label it as something like nausea. They just know that they feel funny. But feeling funny can be a lot of other things too, like pain. And many times there could be differences between the story a parent is telling you versus a story that the child or especially the adolescent is telling you. So it's difficult to know who to trust and which story to follow. But I think it is the best practice to collect both sides of the story and kind of put it together using the different perspectives. But knowing that The child is the expert about how they are feeling and the parent is just observing but might have a better memory when it comes to the history of their illness. Even well exams can be challenging because normal looks very different at different ages whereas when you see a healthy adult then you know what healthy looks like and it's largely predictable what is going to happen on physical exam, whereas pediatrics, you also have to take into account development as part of the exam, knowing that a four-month-old can do a little bit more than a two-month-old can, and a two-year-old is going to look a lot different than a one-year-old. And just the fact that many children develop at slightly different times at different paces, and what you might consider to be normal, someone else can have a very different progression of development, but still be within the normal range and still completely develop properly, but just a little bit different. So, even then, not all two year olds will look the same. I really did enjoy working with kids, and I'm definitely considering a specialty that at least involves working with children part of the time. I am very much passionate about preventative medicine, so this kind of makes sense that preventative medicine is best when it starts in the very young populations because a healthy lifestyle can start very young and you can set yourself into habits that can last a lifetime and prevent disease and live a healthy life. And I remember my own experience when I was younger looking up to doctors and how I placed so much value into whatever they said to me. I felt so special when a doctor would tell me that I was healthy, that I was doing a good job, and that I was eating healthy, making good decisions, things like that. So it would be amazing to serve that role to others as I go through my career. Just to give you a little bit perspective on what kinds of things I saw during my rotation, I saw a ton of constipation. Constipation is so common, especially in little children, as well as teenagers. And what is interesting is that constipation in children often presents a little bit differently than in adults. For example, constipation can go on a lot longer without it being noticed because children will just feel like their tummy hurts. And when they tell their parents that their tummy hurts, then it is often thrown to the side as a stomach bug or indigestion or even reflux. And many parents might not know the actual frequency that they should expect their child to go to the bathroom. And especially once a child approaches the age where they can finally go to the bathroom on their own, then a lot of times the parents will allow them to be completely independent and won't really know how often they're really going. And small children can be a really bad historian when it comes to that with saying that they go every day when it's really more like once a week or twice a week. And a lot of times young children don't want to talk about bathroom stuff. They feel embarrassed by that and they could even go regularly, but the, the consistency of their stool can be very much like constipated stool instead of what healthy stool looks like and they they don't know better they don't know what healthy stool really looks like and parents aren't asking them what their stool looks like so it can go on for a really long time until they are in so much pain that it might be interfering with school and a problem that I saw quite a few times is that when a child is constipated enough they get to the point where it hurts to pass stool. And when it hurts to pass stool, well, a child isn't going to want to engage in that activity if it's going to hurt them, so then they also withhold, which is called functional constipation, where they won't go to the bathroom even though they have to, and they can just keep holding it and grow more and more constipated and backed up. And constipation in children can present even with diarrhea because when constipation occurs it can block them up so much that stool will block the bowels and then small pieces of stool and more stool that is more loose can manage to get around it and then that appears to be diarrhea but they're actually constipated and that's something called loose stool overflow, or overflow diarrhea, or encopresis. And when that happens, it actually is involuntary. Children will notice that they have incontinence, and they'll notice it on their underwear, and parents will assume that they have diarrhea, but they really are constipated. Additionally, constipation, when it goes on for long enough and it backs them up so much, digested food has to go somewhere, and children can even have vomiting as a sign of constipation as well. But other things I saw a lot of include colds, strep throat, COVID, a lot of rashes, and I even saw a micropreemie, which is what we call infants that are born at less than 26 weeks of gestation. So she was around the time of her actual due date. So she was actually the size of a newborn even though she was a few months old. And she was in quite a few times because we were monitoring her weight and it was just cool to see see her grow, just see how important continuous care is in supporting a family like that. I also saw developmental concerns, behavioral concerns, kids with autism, and even adolescents with depression and suicidal thoughts as well. And I guess I realized how important pediatricians are because they are often the first doctors that patients see with very important mental health concerns. So pediatricians really do serve a vital role in, in monitoring for depression and suicidal thoughts and other mental health conditions and then making proper referrals as well. And many of them even do prescribe antidepressants and other psychiatric medications as well. So the end of this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about vaccines because within a one-month rotation, I encountered many parents that were either skeptical about vaccines or wanted to follow a different vaccine schedule or even flat out did not want to give their child any vaccines whatsoever. Of course, there were also parents that completely wanted to follow the CDC guidelines when it came to vaccines, but it just was astonishing how much variability there was even within the same town and parents and families attending the same pediatric office as well. So as some background, babies are born with maternal antibodies. This means that whatever their mom is immune to, the baby will also be immune. This is passive immunity. It's just passed down. But this doesn't protect against everything because mom might not have antibodies for everything, but it certainly does help protect the baby. These protective antibodies, unfortunately, wane over a period of six to 12 months. So by one year of age, baby is completely vulnerable and does not have any immune system, so they would have to encounter it firsthand to build up antibodies. However, when baby is born, their immune system is basically non-existent, And their immune system eventually does become stronger, but it doesn't happen in until several months later. That's why the maternal immunity is so important. And natural immunity is a very healthy thing. You want your baby to be exposed to some germs to build up their immune system. So not obsessing over cleaning everything and never letting them outside the house But, of course, you never want to purposefully expose baby to harmful germs, but you can let kids play and get dirty, certainly. And we can see keeping your baby too protected can backfire, as we see with the increase of food and environmental allergies that is linked with late exposure to these allergens. That being said, there are some things we do not want to risk infants getting exposed to firsthand. The bacteria and viruses that we don't want baby to encounter with their immature immune system are especially the bacteria and viruses that can be lethal in infants and toddlers of their age. The good news is that we have vaccines that prevent diseases that once were some of the leading causes of infant mortality. Let me say that again. You do not want babies to build up natural immunity to something that could kill them. It's not worth the risk. That's why vaccines have changed the world because there is very little risk involved. Both of the pediatricians I worked with stated that the most important part of their job was giving vaccines. Also, the timing of vaccines matter. The CDC does not make arbitrary guidelines. The vaccine timing is done to build up strong immunity by the age at which infants would have a life-threatening disease if they were unvaccinated. They're also spaced out in a way that infants can effectively mount an immune response to the vaccine, and so subsequent vaccines can effectively serve as boosters to maximize defense. The vaccine schedule also also set up to reduce the number of shots needed by combining different vaccines for different diseases into one. For example, there is a vaccine called MMRV that vaccinates against four different viruses. So starting with hepatitis B, this is a vaccine that is first given within 24 hours of birth. And this is important because the sooner in life you contract hepatitis B, the more severe your disease is. So infants who contract hepatitis B will have a devastating lifelong condition that increases the risk of liver failure and cancer. Hepatitis B is transmitted via blood and is easier to transmit than HIV. It doesn't require much blood at all, and many carriers are unaware that they even have the infection. Rotavirus is one of the viruses that have a vaccine given at two months, four months, and six months, so that the baby is immune by the time they lose their maternal antibodies. And this vaccine is important because if an infant or young child is infected with rotavirus, it can quickly lead to severe dehydration and it can be a medical emergency. DTaP is another vaccine given during the same months, two months, four months, and six months, and that vaccinates against diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Pertussis is the one that a baby is most likely to be exposed to naturally and is also the most dangerous. Pertussis causes whooping cough that leads to narrowing of the airways that makes it difficult for infants to get enough oxygen when they experience repeated bouts of coughing. The younger you are when you get it, the more severe and life-threatening it tends to be. So it's important to give these vaccines early, and the CDC recommends two months, four months, and six months to make sure that you have full immunity by the time you lose your maternal antibodies. Next is Hib and pneumococcal. Both of these vaccines protect against meningitis, which is inflammation of the brain, very dangerous, pneumonia, and bloodstream infections. Infants are not able to mount a natural immune response against Hib or pneumococcal, so vaccination is vital. Hib and pneumococcus used to be the most common causes of severe illness in babies until vaccines came out. Polio is another vaccine that may not seem important. However, with increasing rates of unvaccinated children you do not want your child to be unvaccinated because an outbreak could potentially occur. Polio is still present in some countries in the world, and if an outbreak occurred, it would be devastating because polio is highly contagious. MMRV covers measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella, and they require the infant to mount a strong response. You give the vaccine at one year old, So, that maternal antibodies don't interfere with the immune response that is required for the vaccines to work. So, I hope that provides a good introduction on why vaccines are so important and why it is so important for infants in particular to get vaccines. I will put some links in the show notes for additional reading. Thank you so much for listening again i'm on instagram at first line podcast also on facebook facebook.com slash first line podcast you can reach out for any questions comments suggestions feedback i'd love to hear from you thanks again